I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to Haunted Honeys. The podcast where a ghoulish couple teaches each other about terrifying things in the past. That's right. It is our third annual Halloween Spectacular. Spooktacular? Spooktacular! I think that might be copyrighted by somebody. Spookumstacular. Sure, why not? So, dear, what are we talking about specifically on this year's Haunted Honeys? Other than spookums. Where where are they? Ooh, they are somewhere we've never gone before. We're boldly going. That's definitely copyrighted to by a, somebody. To a far-off land. <laughs> mm-hmm. Antarctica. Oh, oh. Yeah. This is going to be weird. But yeah. Because like when, when you think about haunted stuff, it's very like, you know, Victorian. Yeah. The older something is, the more haunted it is. Oh, yeah. There's nothing old, at least man-made, in Antarctica. Kinda. All right. There's, Prove I mean, me wrong. There's stuff there from like the early 1900s. That's pretty old. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like... Old. Not not as old though as other things. <laughs> so yeah, Antarctica, the southernmost continent. I've heard of it. Uh got the South Pole. Mm-hmm. Covered in ninety eight percent ice. For now. It's probably unchanged. Is that the scariest thing we're gonna say? <laughs> you know? Yeah, probably. Uh it's also considered the most haunted place in the world. <laughs> if you compare amount of ghosts. To people who live there. So, like, per capita hauntings, yeah. yes. the most haunted. Yes. that's That makes sense. I mean, especially if you're going off of, like, permanent residence, which is, like, none. Right. But if you're, you know, usually there's a few thousand people living there at a time. You would get a divide by zero error. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, when we think of, like, Antarctica, we think modern. Yeah. Um, Science stations and boats that just leave. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, myths about... Antarctica existing. Uh, <laughs> what they would refer to as like a Terra Australis. Sure. Uh, go back to antiquity. Um, it was not seen until like 1820 mm-hmm. when a Russian expedition sighted one of the ice shelves Okay. for the first time. The first documented landing was 1821, though like it's documented, but there's not like proof. The, Someone docu- said I went. Those documents are disputed. Yes. Okay. And then in 1895, it was the first conf- confirmed landing by a group of Norwegians. Mm-hmm. So, like, people have been going there a while. Congratulations, yeah. Norway. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about some certain uh, things and places that are in Antarctica and how there's spookums attached to it. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk about uh, Robert Falcon Scott first. Sure. Uh, He was a British Royal Naval officer who led two expeditions Mm -hmm. uh, into Antarctica. The first was the British National Antarctic Expedition, or also called the Discovery Expedition. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was 1901 to 1904. And then there was uh, the British Antarctic Expedition... Or the Terra Nova Expedition. Which was canceled midway through its first season. Because <laughs> Terra Nova. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this took place in uh, 1910 to 1913. It's not, I'm not saying he's the first ring. There are lots of other expeditions going on, but we're going to talk about him. Sure. So uh, the Discovery Expedition uh, set a new southern record by marching to latitude 82 degrees south. Mm-hmm. 
They discovered the Antarctic Plateau, which is what the southern pole is located on, but like several hundred miles inward. If you don't know to expect a plateau and you suddenly hit one, it seems like the best time to turn around. Yeah. 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 So the crew didn't really have much experience with, you know, those types of waters, that type of land. Did anyone in 1901? You know, I feel like if you were used to going, like, say, up mountains or something. Sure, sure. Or living in very cold climates, you would have a better understanding Mm -hmm. of what you're dealing with. Being from England, no. (laughs) They didn't really do any, like, special training with the equipment or anything that they were going to have before they set sail. Just a stiff upper lip and all that. Yeah, just we're going to do this. While they were there, they had an early attempt at uh, ice travel. Like, you know, going out, doing a little adventure, some hiking, sleeping in some tents. Yeah. They got caught in a blizzard, and they made the decision to leave their tents, which did result in someone dying. George Vince uh, slipped over a precipice in 1902 to his death. You know, they they explored some stuff, they did some scientific things, uh, but for the most part, a pretty, like, not-too-much-happened expedition. When it comes to, like, death. Say that to the Vince family. Yeah. At the end of the expedition, it did take two relief ships and some explosives to free the ship from the ice so they could leave. Ice ain't nothing but a big old hug. Just can't let you go. Love having you here, Mr. Falcon. So now during the Terra Nova expedition, which was his second attempt, the main objective was to reach the South Pole. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were also planning to do scientific research along the way. Were they hoping to meet Nega Santa? Maybe. He sees you when you're awake and he knows when you're sleeping. Yes. Yes. As they were planning this trip, uh, Scott was like, I don't really think our main techniques are going to get us all the way to the South Pole, which mm-hmm. was like m- man hauling. So like they were pulling sleds themselves with equipment. Yeah, yeah, I think he's right. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna say thumbs up to you, Scott. So he was like, "We need motor traction." Mm-hmm. We need, but there was like nothing that existed at that time for like snow travel. So no, he nobody was making snow cars in 1905. Yeah. So he uh, got his engineer working on the idea, mm-hmm. and he came up with a caterpillar track for snow surfaces. So like what you have like on tanks. Like that type of stuff, but for snow. And he did this around like 1909. And Scott's like, great, but dang, that's probably not going to get us all the way there either. So we're going to (laughs) need lots of dogs Uh and horses. Sure, sure. So he had a dog expert uh, who was going to Siberia to select the dogs that they would take to help pull the sleds. But he was like, okay, I need you to get ponies too. Give Mm -hmm. Give me Siberian ponies and stuff. Well, this dude's not a horse dealer. He's a dog man. He's a dog man. Apparently, he got some really poor quality, ill-suited ponies. He got taken for a pony ride? Yeah. Ah. Yeah. So, in June 1910, uh, the Terra Nova, which was a converted whaler, set off. And they had a lot of misfortunes right away. Uh, They nearly sank in a storm. Mm -hmm. And then they were trapped in a pack of ice for 20 days. Uh, on their way to Antarctica from New Zealand. Uh, and then they got there late, so they had less time to prepare for winter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're traveling in the, like, during the summertime, so 
you can like have time to set up and then basically be huddled for winter. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as like spring hits, you go out and start your expeditions. Why wouldn't you huddle up in New Zealand for the winter? Well, because you need to go and like set up your base camp. Okay. And then you need to be able to set up stations along the way. So you kind of, they have, what they do, like for these types of long expeditions where they're traveling, you know, 800 miles, mm-hmm. is there's certain like points that they also need to set up like supply rations, basically. Yeah, yeah. Also just getting everything in. Part of why they need to have a base camp is because like those ships can get trapped in the ice and stuff and you won't have like access necessarily. Mm-hmm. So various things with that. Uh, So they got there late, and they had less time to do it. Mm -hmm. So when they did arrive, they lost one of their motor sleds. When they were trying to get it off the boat, it fell through the ice and sank. And then because the weather was getting bad, Mm -hmm. their ponies weren't good. Don't insult the poor ponies. It's not their (laughs) fault. They're doing the best they can. Their their main supply point, uh, which was called One Ton Depot, was... About 30 miles north of its planned location mm-hmm. because they couldn't get far enough in. They also had four ponies die during trying to do this. Huh. Oh, wow. It's a lot of things working against them. Uh, they were also uh, joined by Roald Amundsen, a rival explorer whose focus was only on getting to the pole. Mm-hmm. There's no scientific investigations happening. He just wants to, to get that pole. Yeah. Get Ride the, it all night. Get that title. Okay. Uh, and so they were camped with a crew about 200 miles east that had a huge team of dogs, and they were about 60 miles closer to the pole. Bum, bum, bum. So they're like, well, dang it. All right. I need to do a Twister remake, but it's based on the true story. <laughs> yeah. Of uh, the the Terra Nova expedition. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, during this this time, about three more of their ponies died. <laughs> Give and... the ponies snowshoes. Well, so there was actually a thing. And they don't fall through the ice. Well, part of it was not even just that. Like, some of them were falling through the ice. Some of them were, you know, just not strong enough for the work they were doing. Just worked to death. Maybe that's the, the connection to the last episode to keep our chain going. Yeah, they were worked together. Horses them. worked to death. Yeah. Great. Love it. One thing with them, actually, is that the person in charge of the horses, like, refused to use this type of horseshoe that they should have been using for the snow uh-huh. as well. And I was like, no, we don't need those. So, I mean, horses probably needed them. It probably would have helped. So uh, after winter... Uh, Scott led a party with four other men Woo, party! to the South Pole, mm-hmm. uh, which they did reach on January 17th, 1912, about five weeks after their rival did. Oh, Munson. So they were pretty disappointed, pretty upset, especially Scott, because his whole thing was like, I'm going to get the South Pole for queen and country and blah, blah, blah. Or king and country. I thought it was a queen. It was this 1912. Yeah. We're steadily in uh, Edwardian England. Royalty and yeah. people. Royalty and people. That's <laughs> um, what they say. Two days later, they began the 800-mile return journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, by February 7th, even though they had bad weather, they had gone about 300 miles. Yay! They had gotten through the uh, polar plateau, and then they had a 100-mile descent at the Beardmore Glacier. 
which they're like, okay, we got this. We're doing this. This will be fine. We got 400 miles left. Well, then things got bad. Uh-huh. Uh, they had more bad weather. The depots that they were stopping at had a odd lack of fuel from what the plan was. A Amunzen. Same with, like, food and other supplies. Mm-hmm. And then frostbite was starting to set in on many of them. One of the men, Edgar Evans, who was kind of the right-hand man, considered one of the strongest in the group, mm-hmm. took a sharp decline around February 17th, and then he died at the foot of the glacier. Mm-hmm. Just died. Before going out on this expedition, uh, Scott had made arrangements for the men at base camp to head out with dogs to do more ration drops. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be by dogs, it could be by men, but, like, you need to go out, you need to drop stuff. Uh, specific- I would love to see these dogs using compasses yeah. and maps. Well, there'd be a person with them. Uh, not in my head. Just sending one out with a little backpack. Yeah. Yeah. And a song in his heart. He also instructed that they should set out uh, to try to meet them at 82 degrees latitude to help them get back. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of things delayed these things from happening. Eventually, they went. They were off schedule. Uh, A dog team went and made it as far as One Ton Depot uh, and dropped supplies. And they were like, okay, we have enough food where I could, like, go a couple more days, but I won't really make it to the next drop. Or I could just wait here and see if they get here Mm -hmm. for... So long, but then I have to turn back because we have to have enough food to get back. Right. So we waited it out. They didn't show up. Went back. Uh, March 2nd, Mm -hmm. another one of the members of this expedition was suffering from frostbite, and it was really slowing them down. The temperature surprisingly dropped to negative 40. Surprisingly, in Antarctica, it got very cold. Well, you know, it's normally, like, cold. But this was, like, it's normally, like, below freezing. But, like, during this time, like, that was exceptionally cold for, like, what it should have been. Yeah. And a few days later from that, uh, Oates, who was suffering from frostbite, just left the tent and walked to his death, saying, Uh I'm going outside, maybe some time. Like, forever? Like, forever. I have no plans to come back. Say hello to Mr. Vince for me. So then on March 19th, they made camp. They were 11 miles from One Ton Depot, Mm -hmm. and a blizzard made it impossible for them to travel for nine days. So the three of them that were left were there, running out of supplies. Mm -hmm. On that ninth or tenth day, uh, Scott was the last one to die in the tent, because they could never leave. The privileges of rank. (laughs) His final uh, journal entry... Every day we have been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away, but outside the door of the tent it remains a scene of whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. Yeah. Huh. And during the uh, nine days that they were in these tents, they knew they were going to die. Mm-hmm. Because they were all writing letters to their friends and family. Eight months later, they were able to trek out and find the bodies mm-hmm. when the weather calmed down. Uh, and this was on November 12th. They finally found them. 
They took all of the personal effects, uh, the journals, the letters, all that, then collapsed the tent on the bodies, covered Mm -hmm. it with snow, and left them there. (laughs) Uh, They never found the other bodies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I don't think they ever looked for the one because it was too far away, but they never found Oates. Um, They did find his sleeping bag. Oh, that's But they never found him. Um. Uh, You know, a century of storms and snow have come, completely covered the site. Um, It's believed that their bodies now are about 75 feet under snow. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe about 30 miles from where they originally died, because, you know, the ice shelf has moved. Right. Uh, It's believed, depending on global warming, uh, that within 275 years, the bodies may reach uh, the sea and just float away inside an iceberg. So... Obviously, there's a lot of ghost stories about these dudes. <laughs> yeah, anybody out on the Ross Ice Shelf, uh, if you see a visitor, welcome them in, I guess. <laughs> it's probably one of them. Yeah, see if they have any great stories about dead horses. <laughs> well, and there is also um, a lot of connection to that that main like base, the mm-hmm. hut that they like had been staying in originally. That they were trying to like get back to, that it still stands, it still exists, and there's a lot of uh, stories connected to that place about how it feels weird. People hear things, things move. Um, so maybe they eventually made it back. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to those good, good orienteering dogs. The ghosts of them. Yes. Yeah, and the ponies. The ghosts of the ponies. Oh, the ponies were useless. Oh, I've learned that. Yeah. Um, no one thing that's interesting is that no one would go to the South Pole again until October 31st, 1956. Happy anniversary. Yeah. Tomorrow. But yeah. Like another 40 whatever years for <laughs> someone to be that crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now we're going to talk a little bit about this, this hut. A haunted hut. The haunted hut. We're going to include um, a couple links. I found some great like pictures, mm-hmm. both of uh, Scott and his crew during the time of all this, and then um, pictures of the hut as it is now. Mm-hmm. So we'll be linking those, and they're really neat. You should check them out. Um, so the hut, though, was a prefabricated hut that was made in England and brought with them by ship. It was about like 50 by 25 feet. Apparently, it was, like, super insulated. Um, I would hope. So they made, like, insulation by sewing seaweed into quilts and then, like, doing, like, double-planked walls with the quilt between it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they also, like, did a sandwiching for the roof where it was, like, three layers of planks and two layers of rubber ply, also with, like, quilted seaweed. <laughs> and these were all things that they had learned from that, like, first expedition. When they, right, They're like, right. Okay, how can we prove upon this and they did and apparently they did it so well and also figuring out how to like extract heat from the stove and like utilize what's getting generated Mm -hmm. the hut was really uncomfortable because it was so warm (laughs) it was too warm (laughs) guys i'm gonna open a window don't you dare (laughs) yeah apparently it's very uncomfortable to be in (laughs) and that's before the ghosts before the ghost, even. It was uncomfortable. Can you imagine it now? Yeah. Uh, after, you know, they found the bodies, finished packing up, 
hut was left as is with plenty of supplies mm-hmm. within it. Twinkies that'll last forever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of lard, I'm sure. <laughs> Seal blubber. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. All that. Which was good because during uh, 1915 to 1917, the hut was used again by a group from Shackleton's Ross Sea Party. So mm-hmm. this was another expedition that was going on. Their task was to make like supply drops again mm-hmm. for this other expedition. While they were anchored, their ship broke adrift in May oh, no. 1915. It like got hit with some moving ice and it like broke the anchor and all this and it was just like went away. So they ended up getting, you know, marooned. Uh, and so they were able to make the hut their permanent quarters, were able to still do their supply drops because they had a home base with supplies for themselves and warmth. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and they were actually pretty comfortable uh, until they were rescued in 1917. <laughs> Though their hard work of making those supply drops, like, was not needed because uh, Shackleton's expedition, like, failed miserably. And they never, like, made it to where these supplies were. <laughs> They had to turn back and all this stuff. They held up their end of the bargain, despite some real disadvantages. So after 1917, when they left, again, the hut was left as is, and it remained untouched until 1956, which was when uh, U.S. expeditioners, like, dug it out of the snow and ice. And apparently it is remarkably preserved. Artifacts, food, everything that was there is just there. You know, I mean, they just left it in the freezer for 40 years. Yeah. It's still good. It's still good. So New Zealand and the UK have like kind of kept up the restoration of removing the ice <laughs> over the years since then. Uh, and it's the like Antarctica Historical Society. Yeah, it's now a historical site. Actually, there there is an Antarctic Historical Association that kind of preserves some of these places. Um, and you can, like, if you happen to be in Antarctica, like, you can go tour it. Mm-hmm. But due to global warming and raising temperatures, um, it's starting to get really smelly mm-hmm. because of seal blubber that huh. is in it. It's starting to get a little too warm that it's, like, deep freeze that kept it from smelling. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it starts to smell. Oh, that's gross. And it's experiencing certain um, issues with, like fungus being able to grow uh, because of slight temperature changes. Uh, yeah. So global warming, the most terrifying thing we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we're going to be pretty consistent. <laughs> <laughs> also, you know, it's haunted. Uh, but we're going to talk about a building that's even more haunted. Oh, good. And that is the McMurdo Station on Ross Island. Ooh. Uh, this is the one of the U.S. research centers. Uh, it is on New Zealand-claimed land, however, uh, and it can support over a thousand people at a time. Mm-hmm. It first opened in February 1956, uh, and the base is said to be extremely haunted by people who are there, visitors who come. They, they say they feel intense wrongness mm-hmm. they hear and see things that aren't there they see like footsteps left behind by no one right all all the normal ghosty spookum things yeah yeah now why is this place so haunted that is the question <laughs> 
So in the 1970s, Antarctica became a tourist destination. Mm-hmm. Uh, day trip flights from New Zealand became a thing. People could fly there, enjoy the aerial views, mm-hmm. go home. Now, these trips were pretty dangerous. Flights to Antarctica <laughs> can be really problematic due to the fact that the landscape is just ice and there's not a lot of visual references for the pilots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, magnetic compasses are pretty useless. Because you're right by the southern magnetic pole. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of weather issues. So in 1979, uh, this day had very low visibility because it's you know antarctica antarctica uh the mcdonnell douglas sc-10 plane took off piloted by five officers who had pretty much no experience flying there sure great love it uh learn by doing that's what i always say (laughs) the data that they entered into their flight profile was wrong Mm mm-hmm And this is data that was used before, but when it was used before, visibility was fine. So, like, you know, they didn't really have any issues. They could see everything, make adjustments, whatever. Not so on this 1979 day. Yeah. So as they went over the Ross ice shelf, the pilot went below the clouds to give a better view. Mm -hmm. Now, he was supposed to stay above 6,000 feet and went 1,500 feet. Uh, Because of the wrong data, the visibility, all this, the pilot didn't know he was descending right into Mount Mount Erebus, an over 12,000-foot volcano. Uh Uh-huh. So even, like, if, like, good visibility, he would have had to have been like, let's avoid this volcano. (laughs) But because no visibility, he's like, let me just fly right into it. The plane crashed into the side of the volcano at 300 miles an hour and instantly killed all 257 people. Wow, that's really going to do a ding on your uh, tourism industry, huh? 257, uh, really? Oh, boy. So the bodies were recovered from the crash and stored at McMurdo. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, and it was probably a few months before they could remove all of them to New Zealand. Love to be a meteorologist and have five corpses as a roommate. Can't get enough. Five? Five? You mean like 257? Well, they were divided evenly between all oh. of the people at the station. So uh, that's why that is an incredibly haunted place. <laughs> okay. Yeah, just like almost 300 bodies just there. I'm just trying to study sea ice. Yeah. Leave me alone. Uh, we're going to talk about another ghost Great. that might be roaming the McMurdo building. Sure. Station, I guess, is a better term. That's what they call it, yeah. Uh, there, there are no stories about him being a ghost, but I, when you hear this, he's going to be a ghost. <laughs> he's got some people to haunt. <laughs> so his name is Rodney Marks. He was mm-hmm. an Australian astrophysicist who died while working in Antarctica in May 2000. Mm-hmm. So, new ghost. He did not survive Y2K. Uh, so, he had worked and wintered in the South Pole station before in, like, 1997 to 1998, and he was doing it again. He was employed with the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, uh, working on their Antarctic Submillimeter telescope and remote observatory. That sounds fake, but I'll allow it. 
So on May 11th, he became unwell while walking between the observatory and the base. Mm-hmm. Over the next 36 hours, he became increasingly sick. Uh, he visited the station doctor many times. They did like satellite calls to get medical advice. And the next day, uh, he died without them having any idea what was wrong with him. Mm-hmm. Now, a statement was released at that point that said he died of natural causes, but the specific cause of death had yet to be determined. And it couldn't be until they could take his body to New Zealand for an autopsy, which wouldn't be for another six months. <laughs> okay. Keep him outside, because that's going to smell. <laughs> so once they got him to New Zealand and mm-hmm. he had his autopsy, uh, they found out he died from methanol poisoning. That It's very natural after you have it in your body. From then on, it's a completely natural process. Yeah. Yeah. So since jurisdiction is really complicated in Antarctica, uh-huh. um, this was really complicated. Because uh, that base, as I said, is a U.S. base on New Zealand, claimed land. Um, and there's a whole lot of, like, different ways legal things are handled there because like well it depends on what you're a citizen of Mm -hmm. it depends on what land you're on what company you're working for like all these things very complicated but an investigation was started uh it was started by grant wormald Mm -hmm. oh uh not you who was a new zealand police uh part of the new zealand police department Mm -hmm. now he started the official like investigation what was ruled out was suicide, and knowingly ingesting it was also ruled out mm-hmm. based on his life and what was going on in his life and people who knew him. Accidentally ingesting it was extremely unlikely. There was very little methanol that existed there. Mm-hmm. So they didn't think it was a thing he did to himself. Now, there are 49 other people living on the base at the time. When the investigation started... Grant, our policeman, not Grant you. Okay. I'm no cop. Could only speak to like 13 of the 49 people. <laughs> and and why is that? Was he just simply not multilingual enough? Well, by then, like, a lot of them had, like, left. Uh-huh. Because, you know, think about this. This is happening at least six months later, if not more. Right. But then when he reached out to, like, the U.S. for more information on, like, well, who was working there at the time, they, like, wouldn't give him information. <laughs> Uh-huh. Were any of the people working there at the time senators' sons? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Ah. His investigation is technically still ongoing. It has not been closed. <laughs> I imagine it's been a long time since they got a new clue, though. Yeah, but it hasn't been closed. hmm The U.S. apparently did their own investigation, too, but, like, none of that's public record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no answer to what happened to this person. But I think we can assume it was murder. <laughs> right, because if he did it intentionally, you probably would have said, oh, I think I know why I'm feeling sick. Probably wouldn't have gone to the doctor so many times completely worried about what was going on with him. Yeah. I think murder, which means totally a new ghost hanging around these past the, 18 the years. The vengeful ghost of Rodney Marks. Mm-hmm. Trying to solve his own mystery In a reverse Scooby-Doo situation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which can only mean the talking dog is the killer. Yes. Those Antarctic dogs, they're so clever, but so devious. So now we're going to talk about a couple things that 
came up when I was looking for ghost stories of Antarctica. Sure. I wonder, like, Google, you're just looking for, like, one word in here. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the ghost mountains. Ooh. Have you heard of them? Uh, I assume it's what happens when you kill a mountain in cold blood. No. Okay. Uh, so the ghost mountains are also known as the the Gimbertsiv mountain range. This ghost range is a range of mountains that are very similar in size to Europe's Alps, mm-hmm. uh, with the highest peak being about 15,000 feet that has never been seen by people. <laughs> Uh-huh. Well, if a tree falls in a mountain range that no one knows exists, does it make a sound? <laughs> this is really cool, though, because it is a mountain range that is under about three miles of ice. Oh, well, that'll explain it. That, there you go. That has been mapped by radar. Probably has been encased in ice for about 34 million years. Uh, a group of Russian explorers in the 1950s observed that there was, like, strange gravel gravity fluctuations there. Mm-hmm. And it led to further investigation. Um, and there's some really cool, like, uh, images you can find of it where it's basically like an MRI has been done of the <laughs> planet to show, like, how they're shaped. Mm-hmm. Um, and they run for about 1,800 miles. Now, are you sure they're all mountains? Because one of them might be the temple from Alien vs. Predator. You know, it could be. It could be. I was reading about this mysterious staircase that appeared in the snow, like a, a staircase of snow. Mm-hmm. So it's either Elsa okay, or could aliens. Be. Could be. Or a lot of people want to think it's Atlantis appearing through the ice because that's really that's where Atlantis where it was. Went. It's in Antarctica. That... Before Antarctica was like snow. It's always the last place you look. Yeah. 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 So maybe like it's connected. <laughs> but one thing that's interesting with like this mountain range is they said that, you know, it, it totally would have eroded and not existed by this point in time mm-hmm. if it wasn't for like the ice. That's which pretty is, cool. Which is cool. I'm sure the Antarctica Historical Society is really proud of the ice. Yeah. Yeah. Helping them out. Helping doing them a solid. out, preserving things. Um, so that's one of the things Google gave me that is spookums related. Uh, it's kind of spooky, I guess. Gravity fluctuations. Well, another one we're going to talk about is Blood Falls. Oh, come on now. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's so spooky. <laughs> Uh, Blood Falls is in Taylor Valley, Antarctica. You know, tales of spooky things often talk about, like, blood oozing from a wall or a cave or something, right? Right. So, Antarctica has its own waterfall of blood. (laughs) Why do we go there? Just stop it. Everybody out of the pool, come home. No. So it, it is this this waterfall where it does look like it's literally just bleeding into the water. They originally thought that the color was caused by like a red algae. Uh-huh. What they actually just found out last year <laughs> is that the color is from oxidized iron and water from a five million old five million year old saltwater lake. That is under the ice. So it's rust water. It's rust water. It's disgusting. It's cool. There's a giant <laughs> lake under there and it's bleeding. I like to imagine we could have discovered this any old time, but nobody wanted to go near it. <laughs> they so got it enough took, to deal with in their lives. It took decades to figure it out. 
Uh, One researcher to work up the dang nerve. Uh, they did also find uh, microbes uh, living in the water that was coming out. Ah, uh, that's cool. Yeah, so that's pretty neat. Yeah. We have another ghost story. Yeah, ghosts. This is like... Now, this didn't happen in Antarctica, but it happened in the water, like, by it. Uh-huh. Uh, this... So it's more Antarctican than it is New Zealandish or Argentinian or South African. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so th- this happened in the Drake Passage, which is in the water around there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love how you give directions. It's in the water around there. This is why we have Google Maps. <laughs> For navigating the Drake Passage. Yeah. That's its one applied purpose. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about the ghost ship Jenny, uh, which is an unproven legend. My favorite kind. But I'm going with it existing. So the story first appeared in a German geographical magazine called Globus. Uh, the author was anonymous. So the schooner Jenny left port in 1823 and was never seen until the whaling ship uh, by the name of Hope found it in 1840. Apparently they saw it coming out from like between two icebergs. Oh, that's some fancy sailing. Probably having broken free from the ice wall that it was like trapped in or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now they saw people on board, but then they realized that those people were frozen solid. Uh, But all the bodies like appeared to be in good condition. uh, So they went and explored and the captain of the Hope went down into the ship. And found the captain of the Jenny at the table with their journal. And they're like, hey. And then they realized, oh, wait, you're frozen solid, too. Ah. And the journal, the last entry said, May 4th, 1823. No food for 71 days. I am the only one left. Ah. And then they explored some more and they found... What who was assumed to be the captain's wife and their dog, also frozen in bed. Mm-hmm. Everyone was dead <laughs> on the ship, frozen in like whatever position that mm-hmm. they were in. Mm-hmm. So the captain of the Hope took the logbook, but they left the ship. Now, some stories say that they like buried those at sea who were frozen. Mm-hmm. Uh, other stories say that they were just like left as is. I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna <laughs> let you go. So, you know, it could be still out there. Uh, <laughs> I don't like it. You don't like it? Don't Wouldn't that like be a great it. X-Files? That would be a pretty good X-Files, yeah, though. It would be so good. <laughs> uh, we're gonna talk about another weird thing. Sure, sure. So, uh, in addition to there being, like, the South Pole, mm-hmm. there is also the South Pole of inaccessibility. Yeah, that's what my therapist says I need to work on. <laughs> Your accessibility? My, yeah, my south pole of inaccessibility. <laughs> yeah. Well, in this case, it is the point in Antarctica that is furthest from the sea mm-hmm. in, like, all directions. So it's a symbolic thing. Yeah. A, a bit of continental geographic uh, coincidence. Yes. Okay. So just back in 2009, some scientists discovered a random... A random monument with a bust of Vladimir Lenin. Well, you got to respect there. the classics. What it ended up being was an old Soviet military base that was covered in years of snow <laughs> that they didn't know existed. And so they just put the bust way up high? Yeah. <laughs> it's the last yeah. thing to be covered? Yeah. 
Lenin on a giant column? Yeah. Okay, fine. It was called Leningradskaya Station, uh, and it operated from February 1971 to 1991. So it collapsed with the Soviet Union. Yes. More or less. Yes. It makes sense. Uh, yeah, no one knew it was there. It's very <laughs> bizarre seeing the pictures of Lenin just there in the snow. It makes me wonder what science they were doing or or military business they were doing. Because it's a spot that's only special for being the hardest spot to get to. Right? That seems really stupid, frankly. <laughs> Anywhere else would be a better spot, by definition. You'd think. So we're going to end with <laughs> um, not ghosties. Okay. But some fun medical facts oh, of the time. Fun medical facts. <laughs> Uh, the things that back in the good old days they would use to try to survive mm -hmm. there. Back in the Terra Nova days? Yeah. Well, let me tell you, it didn't work. Um, so something called gold, gold beater skin. Mm -hmm. uh, this was like a parchment-like dressing that was prepared from the intestines of an ox or sand sharks. And they sure. would put it over like open sores to help heal it. Did it help? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> a lot of people died, so I'd say no. All right. You got me there. Uh, they would have lots of tonics of iron and arsenic. I know. That didn't work. Uh, they would also put cocaine into their eyes to cure snow blindness. So you're saying you're snow blind again? Yeah. I'm real <laughs> snow blind. This is the third time today. Mm, yeah, it's all that snow. There's, It's still out there. Yep. A lot of snow. Uh, they would also grind up chalk with opium to take care of diarrhea. At least you won't mind. <laughs> and then they had something called the forced march, <laughs> which was a blend of cocaine and caffeine that they took hourly to prolong endurance. It'll do it. Like, I'm not... <laughs> this is the most effective one I've heard. Yeah. But it makes me wonder, wow, maybe that's why you died. <laughs> You shouldn't have walked for 24 hours taking cocaine and caffeine every hour. What were his last words when he died? Some sort of disco song? He Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. That's our uh, Antarctica spookums. Yeah. And weirdness. More weirdness than spookums, but... What are you going to do? So, darling, what did you learn? You know what? Cocaine. It can do anything. It can do anything. It's, it's a wonder drug. Just uh, mix cocaine with whatever. You'll be fine. <laughs> you'll feel You know great. why they all died? It's because they used opium with the chalk instead of cocaine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the problem. One thing I'd be curious of is I, I, I met someone who uh, worked in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. I, w I would assume McMurdo. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if he has any stories about these supposed hauntings. It's a good question. I should ask him. You should. Find out. I don't know why I didn't think of that until just now. I might have had an answer by now, but it's too late. Who was it? Uh, one of the Daves of Blurry Photos. Oh. Yeah, uh, David Stecco. I wonder if that Norwegian guy got a... Uh, what happened to, to his party? How many of them didn't make it? You know what? New episode for you to do. Maybe they had the good ponies. They had a lot of dogs. Uh, they had a lot more dogs. That's what it is. The ponies are just a waste of time. Maybe Scott should have had a better dog person who also knew horses. 
Or maybe they should have known when to turn back and be like, you know what? We'll do this next year. Yeah, yeah. Wait it out. We're a little too late. I mean, there's lots of expeditions that happen between all these things I talked about. Like, this is just like the tip of an iceberg. This is not all of the iceberg Mm -hmm, that we're mm -hmm. talking about. There's a 15,000 foot mountain below the surface here. Yes. Yeah. But how there was like so much going on out there at the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. And then like nothing. (laughs) I mean, there was some stuff, but like the main interest grew again, you know, in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting that there was such a long time frame, which I mean, the war, that's probably a lot of it. The world was a bit busy at the time. Um, But there are things which I think would be really cool to look into in the future. Like, if you need an idea, there's uh, (laughs) things like about how there, you know, were like military stations based out of there during World War II. There was also uh, one of the big things you come across when you're looking at for spooky stories in Antarctica is you find out about the oil or in like whaling communities mm-hmm, that existed mm-hmm. and how they're just complete ghost towns now. Yeah. And, like you see all the pictures of like the crap they left behind. <laughs> also legends of ice Nazis. Yes. Uh, speaking of military bases and, uh, you know, Lovecraft's stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to get real spooky, but that's, that's for a fiction show. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There's, there's a lot of, poems and short stories that have been written about Antarctica and people's experiences there. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it it is a completely alien landscape. It's mm -hmm. like the usual rules don't apply there. It's it's bizarre. And so there's a lot of chance for people to get really creeped out. Yeah. And just walk out into the snow one day. <laughs> hmm It's otherworldly. Yeah. Not, not landscape, the things we know about it, the fact that they're still finding stuff, you know, now, mm-hmm. recently. It's it's iron water. Yeah. Yeah, with microbes in it. Also, just like the control of it. Mm-hmm. Talk about an interesting, like, political situation. All the, like, pie slices of jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah. But how, like, even with that, certain things don't apply. They don't have certain jurisdiction over certain things. There's rules that have been put in place that they almost follow as well. Mm -hmm. It's just very interesting. So much to dig into. (laughs) Go check out that iceberg. So, yeah, thanks for enjoying our uh, Halloween-themed introduction to, to the wide variety of topics. That we we could really dive into this continent. Uh, the, the, this barren continent. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break and be back with the letters and such. Mm. Hello, everybody. Hello. We have some uh, deliciously... Devilish letters from everyone. Oh, yes. They're filled with fright. (laughs) Because our uh, uh, prompt for this episode was... Personal spookums. Yeah, we wanted to hear uh, some scary stories just to mix it up. We gave a little extra encouragement to first-hand ones. Yeah. Peter writes in and doesn't have one of those. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. But the scariest story they've ever read is The Stepford Wives by Ira Levin, 
most people, including the, the films, make it a bit of a, a comedy and, and take it as a piece of satire. But from Peter's perspective, it's a scary, scary book. Uh, dehumanization, objectification, uh, especially from the uh, upper crust, made it one of the most unnerving things I have ever read. You want some good spokums? Read that, says Peter. Thanks, Peter. I don't know why I gave you a weird accent, but thanks. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, you want some spookums? Yeah. yeah. A frightful gamer wrote Ooh. in. Who, who first talks about how they shouldn't be so excited to finally have an earthquake episode. Uh, they've been asking for an earthquake or a landslide a long time. Yes, yes. So uh, the long-running series of Elena's atrocities is now Calamity Coupled. Also, we got another congrats on Gexter Life. Well, thank you for making it happen. And Frightful Gamer is sharing their own spookums. Uh, so when they were around nine years old, uh, they went to a fundraiser for the local school. And one of the things you could do was uh, there was a chance to fly in a helicopter, like yeah. a real helicopter. Yeah. So they were waiting in line and there was this bearded man in brown clothes standing next to a tree close by and was like asked if you're having fun like yeah i'm really excited to go flying but then he put his hand uh shoulder and is like be careful it's not your turn yet mm -hmm. it's like okay whatever uh and then it was time for their turn in the helicopter and got strapped in and was ready for takeoff but then they're like oh wait there's a mix-up it was supposed to be a different kid that was supposed to go first it's not your turn yet. So it got out. Other kid got in. The helicopter never came back. <laughs> it had an accident. Oh. Uh, it crashed in a field due to a fuel line breakage, and the child died. And what's even more bizarre is that Frightful Gamer's name was put in the paper's obituary instead of the actual child that died. Uh-huh. Uh, and when they told parents about it, like, you know, this person said that, like, it wasn't my turn. It, it's weird. Like, we never saw it. this man. <laughs> no one was there. Of course not. Of course no one saw the man. That's a freaky story, Frightful Gamer. That's very freaky. Thank you. <laughs> Joe writes in to add a little more information on the story of Chinatown in the aftermath of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake including one of the reasons it remained in place is that the, the consulate that was part of Chinatown, the land was owned by China. It is technically a part of China. Oh. So that's a bit of a zoning issue, to say the least. Yeah. So uh, the Chinese government used that to play hardball. And, uh, well, if, if you move our stuff, we cut off trade. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they, they built it up and decided to, to make some uh, lemonade out of these lemons. And that's why Chinatown, in, in its oldest buildings uh, that then set the tone for its development since, are kind of gaudy, kind of touristy. They, mm -hmm. they, they turn it into an attraction. Yeah. Rather than shoving them out to the fringes of the city. Yeah. And to answer uh, another recent prompt, a play everyone should read is Raisin in the Sun. Quote, to learn that people in the American North are super racist, too. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there are certain episodes of this uh, podcast you could listen to. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. 
Uh, Tori writes in for the first time, but has been a long-time listener. Glad to hear from you, Tori. And answers some old props. So favorite TV channel, PBS Kids. Takes back to the PBS days of their youth. Uh, A play that everyone should read, The Crucible, Mm -hmm. especially in today's world. It still holds very true. I was always a Giles Corey fan myself. Yeah. Yeah. Favorite mode of air travel, turboprop. Everybody loves a good old turboprop. But also has a special place in their heart for the Hughes Spruce Goose amphibian plane and the original Wright biplane. Mm -hmm. I don't know what any of these are, but I assume they all definitely fly. (laughs) Uh, Well, the Spruce Goose was a wooden seaplane that was gigantic, built by Howard Hughes. Okay. And it was a, a bit of a boondoggle, a folly. It, it never really went anywhere. I think it, it like flew once, but it never well, w- I, was pressed I mean, I do service. know what the right biplane is. I know that yeah, one. It's the original right flyer. Yeah. You've seen I it. I couldn't draw them, though, like from memory. Well, then you just go to MSI and, and you I draw it. it by looking at yeah, the model they yeah. have there in the Hall of Aviation. I'm more so, man, I don't know what a turboprop is. Goose amphibian planes, a lot of things. It makes me think that it's like a duck boat that can fly. Yeah. Yeah. A turboprop is a kind of jet engine that also has a propeller. Oh. Cool. Tori doesn't have uh, spookums, but does recommend the short story The Boss in the Wall by Avram Davidson. Apparently it's very spooky. Horror fiction is good stuff. Yeah. I mean, it is often good stuff. Uh, And Tori also gave us a show suggestion and show hope. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So thank you, Tori. And thank you for the picture of your cat. Cat is very cute. Lutz has the nicest eyes. Thank you. I love the little chin. The (laughs) chin's a little different color. It's cute. Thank you, Tori. Scaretic wrote in. I did that myself. She she didn't do that. She's better than that. Uh, (laughs) One day when she was about eight, uh, she and her family were stargazing with this new telescope. And she saw something with the naked eye that she could not find no matter what through the telescope. And everybody thought it was the darndest thing. This this weird thing that, that could be seen just fine unless you wanted to get a closer look. And so uh, her dad came back the next day with an explanation that he heard at work. It was the planet Venus, which just sort of does that. And that, when you're eight, is something you just sort of accept. It it sounds right enough. Yeah. It's not right. Nothing works like that. No. It can be hard to find relatively fast-moving objects in a telescope like the moon. Mm -hmm. But Venus doesn't move that fast in the sky. So, Claritic has now come to the point where, uh, while there's probably an explanation that she doesn't know, she generally can't think of anything more likely than aliens. Yeah. I'd say dust or just a rotten string of bad luck. (laughs) But uh, as someone that's really creeped out by things that are slightly inexplicably off, it counts as a scary story for her. So thank you very much. Uh, Sam writes in to share a couple spookum stories. Uh, The first uh, was when they were in college at 
Luther College in Iowa, living in the dorms. Uh, this college was established in 1861. And this was their original dormitory. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and there were all sorts of random accidents that would happen. Things falling off shelves uh, without being like touched, things being moved, all that stuff. Now, there was always said to be a ghost named Gertrude in the building who would do pranks mm-hmm. and harmless tricks. Uh, but that story kind of falls apart because it's unlikely a female ghost is in the building since they didn't start allowing co-eds until the 60s. It mm-hmm. could be a new ghost. Also, Sam sent us that name chart and yes. college-age girls named Gertrude didn't exist in the 60s. Or were so very, very rare. Yes. Sam also shares another story that isn't really spooky. But it's more scary scary. than spooky, actually. Uh, When they were eight years old, with the Cub Scout troop, they were cleaning up trash in the woods behind the school and found this, like, piece of plastic sticking up through the leaves and went to pick it up. And it was, like, a whole plastic bag that was, like, in the the dirt. And all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, like, pulls it out and it kind of, like, pops out. And inside the bag is a gun, some type of semi-automatic pistol, mm-hmm, which you tell Cub Scout Master about, uh, and they, you know, tell people and all that. But Sam points out that, you know, as gotten older, the story gets spookier, because, like, oh, people don't bury guns unless they did illegal things, and mm-hmm. it's usually not where you put it unless you don't want it to be found. So what did they come across? And it's, it's not a long-term storage solution. No. If somebody buries a gun, they're probably coming for it. Yeah. Pretty quick. Yeah. Dang, Sam. So thanks for the letter. Our last letter is from Alex, who is also a first-time writer after a long time listening. Thank you very much. They really enjoyed our uh, uh, chain that started with the Rosenbergs as a fan of uh, Angels in America and wanted to share another bit of casting trivia that uh, Jason Isaac's Daniel Craig cast also included uh, Stephen Delane as Prior Walter, who is known to HBO viewers as Stannis Brathion of Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, I would have known that. He's the character that uh, in certain shots, in certain beard lengths, people say looks a lot like Ted Leo. Oh. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Some other past prompts. A play Alex thinks everyone should read is, would have been Angels in America, but we covered it. But, you know, just to reiterate that. Uh, favorite movie based on a true story, The Social Network with an honorable mention to Molly's Game, and to complete the Sorkin trifecta, look out for his upcoming film on the trial of the Chicago 7, as described in a much earlier episode of this show. Yes. As far as favorite alien goes, Alex is torn between all of of the great species described in the Animorphs series. Yes. (laughs) And for individuals, going to stick with that either... uh, Axe the Andalite, or uh, Visser One, uh, known individually as Edris 562. Oh boy. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alex. Darlene, do you have any spookum stories to share from your own life? No. No. Because ghosts aren't real. <laughs> Eat it. Take that, ghosts. You can't touch me. How about you, dear? I guess I have two. <laughs> <laughs> As weird as it is, 
I'm not a ghost person, actually. You're a person person. I'm not. Well, I I'm can not. Touch you. I'm not like a, a ghost believer. Mm -hmm. Just an typically enthusiast. enthusiast. But Savannah, Georgia is so fucking haunted. My God, <laughs> that everything feels wrong about that place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, there was that one time I was at work and I was absolutely entirely oh, yes. sure. Someone came in, there were footsteps, I heard them breathing, I heard the door open and close, but there was no one there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my coworkers didn't show up for another, like, 15 minutes. And now you don't work there anymore. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and when I asked them about this afterwards, I was like, did you come in? And they're like, no. And they're like, why? I was like, this happened. And they're like... Oh, yeah, this place is so f***ing haunted. <laughs> so those are my stories. But thanks to everyone for writing in. If you would like to share a letter with us, those can go too. Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And we want to hear your social suggestions, your questions, your corrections, your, your stories of all types, including answering our regular prompts. And for our next episode, I would like to hear people's favorite treaty. For a second, I thought it was just going to be favorite tree. Or treat. It is the season for treats. <gasps> but no, favorite treaty. While you're out there getting in touch with us, why not do it on social media? We are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, and we are on Instagram at History Honeys. You can also give us a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever else you found us. It uh, goes a, a great way to helping us out. And hey, it's a, a brand new season. It's a holiday. Count it as a present. Please. Yeah. Thank you. And tell your friends. Tell those trick-or-treaters. Yeah. Tell those parents of trick-or-treaters. <laughs> it's a lot better than uh, when we said the exact same thing on our other show. Yes. In fact, you can listen to our Sex Archie uh, uh, Halloween special. It, it uh, goes live tomorrow. Yes, it does. And uh, we talk about the first episode of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, the, the Netflix original. Yeah, you should, you should check it out. It's very good. Our episode or the show? Both. Heck yes. Both. And with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better when, when it's spooky. spooky.